Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show... Let me call myself for the moment, William. I'm a storyteller by nature and a liar in my freer times. No part of what I convey is true, but every part is truthful. You will come to despise me, and your revulsion will be rightly warranted, I swear it. Now, however, by way of staying execution and mitigating these accusations against me, I offer this sad history. narrator approaches on a dull, dark, and soundless day. This house, the estate of his boyhood friend, Roderick Usher, is gloomy and mysterious. And so begins The Fall of the House of Usher, a page-to-screen Edgar Allan Poe short story set for release as a dramatic series, and our guest on the show, who says he won't be portraying Poe in the series, is eminent veteran actor Carl Lumley, whose prolific career across the decades highlights the Hollywood renaissance in black movies in the 20th century to playing Gil Scott Heron on stage. Lumley will be revisiting the artistic, political, and historical impact of his films that include playing slave rebel Nat Turner in A Troublesome Property, abolitionist and author of the memoir Twelve Years a Slave, Solomon Northup, in Slavery and the Making of America, Bobby Seale in Conspiracy, The Trial of the Chicago Eight, Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey on American Experience, and the star of Charles Burnett's To Sleep with Anger and Night John, and Miles Davis in American Masters, Birth of the Cool. Lumley will also talk about what he's up to in his current film, I'm Charlie Walker, about a California rebel black trucker in the 70s who goes after corporate oil and construction interests back then. First, some scenes from I'm Charlie Walker, then Carl Lumley. We have a report that a large ship hit the Golden Gate Bridge. We're going to need every truck we can muster. Cleaning up the million some odd barrels of crude washing. Come on, anybody. No, no way. How did you integrate and get a brother's job? Name? Charlie Walker. Get that damn oil off the beach. Yes, sir. Can I help you? I'm the contractor who's gonna clean up that mess. You can't be the boss. What? Because I'm black? The monumental task of clearing the oil. One man has managed to turn the tides with his unconventional methods. So what do they call you? Around here, most people call me sir. You can call me Charlie. I like the way you do things, Mr. Shaw. Just count on each other. Charlie, what are you pulling out here? You got these suits running around like idiots. I heard him on the phone talking about you. He was really mad. Trying to squeeze me out. You fascinate me, Charlie. You're the only one in the room who doesn't know you're black. I'm one of the Muppety Negroes looking to crash the party. Trust me. You're the one person I do trust, Charlie Walker. Hello and welcome. Hello, thank you. Happy to be here. Now, you don't have a major role in I'm Charlie Walker, but this was clearly a passion project that you wanted to be part of. Please talk about that. Well, I think um, what I have is a small role, but I think every role is major. So um, 
why I wanted to be a part of it is because I think uh, my character, Willie, represents a point of view that um, was important to why Charlie Walker was the phenomenon that he was. I think uh, Willie represented the type of black man who uh, was aware of what situations existed. He was aware of the corruption. He was aware of limited opportunity. And he never thought there was anything that could be done about it. Charlie Walker is a different kind of man. And um, Charlie Walker, I think, inspired as much as confused um, any number of people of any number, uh, any different kinds of colors, um, uh, the power brokers, um, people in the community. He represented different things to different people. But for Willie, he was definitely heroic, uh, if not a little bit crazy, because uh, what is it that would make you think that you can upend the system that has had you under its foot for as long as it has? Charlie Walker is one of those people. And what is it about that period of important protest back then, whether by a determined activist like Walker or activism in general back then, that got you on board? I believe I was born on board. Um, The realities of this nation um, put you on one side or another. My parents were immigrants and came here with thinking that there was one thing being offered by virtue of the tremendous job that um, the United States of America did in putting out a message of freedom, democracy, equality, and uh, hope. And that existed for all sorts of people, however, not necessarily for people of color, whether your families and ancestors had worked to build this nation or if you came from uh, other lands, um, seeds of the diaspora that ended up here. Um, there was a different, there was a different plan at work for you. So, in the case of my parents, they wanted, um, they wanted to make it true, for certainly for their children, and they wanted America to live up to its highest ideals. And I think at base, no matter what um, treatment people were enduring, when they looked outside themselves and thought of themselves as members of a group. That's what they wanted for the group. Now, you're no stranger yourself to activists on screen. You portrayed Nat Turner in A Troublesome Property, abolitionist Solomon Northup, author of the memoir Twelve Years a Slave, In Slavery and the Making of America, Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey on American Experience, and Bobby Seale in Conspiracy, The Trial of the Chicago Eight. What led you to want to play these eminent historical rebel figures? My dear Mr. Douglas, join me. I urge you. You have a gift. (sighs) Sir, you really do. (laughs) You flatter me. No. No, I don't. Mr. Garrison, you... You must understand how unexpected this is. I, I never imagined. You, you have an opportunity to strike a blow for the slaves who continue to suffer as we speak. Did the Lord give you these gifts so that you could spend your life working in the shipyards? I see now why you are such an effective advocate. You do it then. I think I will. Um, it's much safer than being them. <laughs> That's um, <laughs> it's um, you know I'm I'm inspired by uh, courage, by heroism. If um, if I could have, I would love to have played Harriet Tubman, um, or Shirley Chisholm. You know, any historical figure um, who who takes agency into their own hands and and 
meets with their heart operating at the top of their intelligence. I, I love that. Now, the reason it's happened has been chance. I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't look out and say, these are the characters I wanted to play. They came to me, but I suppose like all things that come to you by chance, there's a partial reason in it. And um, I, I think of myself as an everyday activist. Um, and I exhort myself to do the best I can to represent the kind of man that I want to be based on the kind of men who were instrumental in raising me and treating women the way I want to be based on, I want to, I would want to be treated myself based on the treatment I received from the amazing women in my life, from my mother and my sisters to uh, wonderful partners. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been fortunate. And what were the challenges for you of telling their stories and being true to their legacies? Uh, the challenge is the research, the challenge is the history, since um, certain histories are not as well documented as other histories, and because of points of view, um, everyone has the story they believe they know based on the way history has placed the characters, but I always feel that there's a human story inside, so my research goes toward finding that humanity and then attaching mine to it and um, and presenting it to whoever whoever will see and in terms of directors of color making movies their way despite the history of cultural apartheid in hollywood and the film world what was it like to be part of the films of innovator charles burnett in night john and to sleep with anger heaven um heaven it was like um charles is a true humanitarian. And so those films, while they explore uh, unexplored stories in certainly communities of color, they also explore the human condition apart from any color. Uh, Charles is a heart man. And um, so his films and his characters are always looking for the larger story. Um, and it's it's heaven. It's 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 a joy. One because he's such a wonderful writer. Two because he's a quite incredible director, um, and allows things to live um, naturally, um, and encourages encourages you as an artist to be free to um, live honestly in that natural space. And what about portraying Gil Scott Heron on stage in Grander? Uh, another um i sometimes forget that i've had the opportunities that i've had and that was a that was a wonderful wonderful opportunity gil scott heron was always um one of my heroes i think of him as a wonderful writer almost as much as i think of him for his music um so it was it was a joy to again explore him not just from the basis of someone who wrote incredible poetic music outlining struggle, but also from someone who had such a sense of joy and um, lived with a beacon of truth that did not put, throw everything else into shadow. It basically just pointed brighter and brighter light at those important things that we all share. Um, yeah, that was a that was a real that was a real privilege. And on another note, what was it like to be part of American Masters in Miles Davis' Birthplace of the Cool? Music has always been like a curse with me. It's the first thing in my life, go to bed thinking about it and wake up thinking about it. That's all I live for. Miles started very early. He looked at things differently. He saw things differently. Without a doubt, the most unique person I've ever known. They wanted to be an artist just like Stravinsky. 
A lot of the old guys thought that if you went to school, it would make you play like you were white. If you learned something from theory, you would lose the feeling in your playing. I wanted to see what was going on in all of music. Juilliard, in the daytime and at night, he'd be on 52nd Street. He put the bell of his horn right into the microphone and changed the whole world of jazz right there. He comes up with a style that is truly reflective of who he is. He was angry, antisocial. But then he starts playing, and people are like, oh, he just disarms you. He surrounded himself with young, emerging, unknown voices. We were kids. We were looking at every night going to a laboratory. Miles was a head chemist. He wanted us to live on the stage, creating in front of the people. Don't lean on what you know. What he was looking for is the stuff that you don't know. We didn't just want to play with Miles Davis. We wanted to be Miles Davis. Miles' audience was changing, absorbing what was happening now. If anybody wants to keep creating, they have to be about change. I lost my sense of discipline and started to drift. Before I knew it, I had a heroin habit. Miles becomes representative of a kind of cool, kind of sophistication, a kind of masculinity. Miles and Francis. I mean, we were a hot couple. And the elevator opened, and there he was. It was like in a movie when you meet the vampire, and you know you're going to die, and you don't care. He becomes our black Superman. All I ever wanted to do was communicate what I felt through music. It was like a whirlwind <laughs> because it took it, it, it took place very very quickly. It was like being visited by a spirit um, and not being sure that that's what happened when you wake up, but then. You know, thanks to the documentation, you get to see it, and it is what happened. It was a, it was a, was a really great experience. It was a difficult experience. Again, Miles, um, one of those individuals everyone believes they they know, but Stanley Nelson, again, going after what makes someone human. You know, the the conditions of your gender or the color of your skin. All of those are uh, things that turn out to be incidental in any real assessment of a human being. Yet, um, for all sorts of reasons, traditional, historical, maniacal, um, those things are brought to bear when they are stripped away and you get to look at simply a human being trying to do what we're all trying to do, which is the best we can in the best way we know every day so, um, it's beautiful and i think people get to share that piece of themselves that relates so wholeheartedly to someone following their love or someone having an idea about an innovation or something that could be made better and not being stopped and any last word on i'm charlie walker and why should audiences see this film um i think I would hope the film conveys, um, let me see, let me see how I can phrase this. At a time when there are certain individuals who feel that enough history has been told and they are satisfied with the traditional history, that myth story of um, how things happened in this nation and um, I'm hoping Charlie Walker is one of those episodes that people will say, I knew about the story, but I did not know about this individual. And how many other stories like this or how many um, documented events are not fully documented. So I think it's, I think it's a, I would hope that people would watch this film and say, how much do I really know about that period of time? Either if I lived through it, or if I'm being told about it by my parents and my grandparents, or if I didn't experience it, but I was always curious as to what it was. I think the, the overall value of these things to me is sharing, sharing truth and sharing, sharing um, 
events and things that actually happen so that you can draw your evaluations about people and places based on fact rather than um, being manipulated or guided by anyone's manipulation. And are you coming up in anything next? Yes. <laughs> um, right now, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm working right now on um, a production of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher that um, Netflix is doing up in Canada with a director named Mike Flanagan, who's uh, quite amazing um, writer-director. So that will be out when it's done. And what are you up to in the fall of the House of Usher? Well, um, I can't, let's see, can I tell you oh. what <laughs> I'm playing? Um, I, I'm playing an investigator. Ah. No, no, that's it. That's it. I'm playing an investigator. Okay. And what in your prolific and very distinguished career has meant the most to you? I think what's meant the most to me is the sense that I have that I am intact, um, that the, the things that I feel about myself um, that I wanted to maintain, just the relationship that I have to myself as a human being and a man, um, that took place. I have a wonderful son. I've had a tremendous family life. I have great friends, and I continue to want to do um, the best work I can do. I feel, um, I feel privileged, and um, it didn't have to be this way. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, not an, it's, it's not an easy walk. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've lived, I've lived a long enough life to have experienced disappointments and uh, betrayals and um, triumphs, and um, I've received tremendous help from people. I've also, for some reason, um, had people who um, were not in my corner and perhaps uh, tried to undermine, but all of that um, on balance, I feel like I'm really happy that I chose to do this uh, with my with my life. And would you care to say anything about how you were undermined and as an actor of color? In general, I was no more undermined than un any other person of color entering uh, this business at the time I did. There was, um, I was undermined by the ignorance of people who were uh, holding on to something that they they weren't exactly sure what it was, except it felt like privilege, and it meant that you could uh, bring people in and keep people out based on your whim. Um, I was undermined by the fact that for a long time in this country, it's an ongoing battle, um, people seem to be afraid of the actual history. They seem to be afraid of accountability and responsibility. And they seem to fear that having been unaware, perhaps, of the reality of the life in which other people are being made to live, that they have nothing to do with that. And I think um, my effort in this business has always been to speak to what I think of as the dignity of all people, myself included. So um, there is a degree to which I am grateful for the sense of being undermined because I think it um, made me stick even more resolutely to my ideals and to my own personal integrity. Okay, thank you so much, Carl Lumley, for calling into the show. Excellent. Thank you. Bye-bye. And I'm Charlie Walker is out now in release from Shout Studios. 
I'm Jeremy Irons, and you're listening to Arts Express. Coming up next, in the Arts Express screening room, Google's hidden CIA connection, the full story. Quote, many people may not realize this, but the CIA was directly involved in the foundation of Google, and not just as is so, obviously, in the present time ever since. Cold Fusion takes a deep dive into what that dangerous covert alliance has to do with brainwashing, the U.S. military, Elections, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, hackers, and quote, how in reality Google is doing things the CIA cannot do. Hi, welcome to Cold Fusion. This episode is about two things. Number one, Google, one of the most recognizable brands today. We know them from the operating system on our phones to their smart home devices to Google Search. Google Maps and Gmail, and even YouTube itself. They're an organization that's so prevalent that they're almost invisible. And the other thing that this episode is about is the CIA, the same organization that overthrows foreign governments and spies on leaders and citizens. From human rights violations to drug trafficking, the CIA has always been shrouded in mystery and controversy. So what does Google have to do with the CIA? Well. Many people may not realize this, but the CIA was directly involved in the foundation of Google. Google co-founder Sergey Brin even reported to representatives of the US intelligence community on his progress. Not only this, but the application that became Google Earth originally had CIA investment. Generally, this is a concerning relationship, but in this episode, we're going to take a deeper look. First of all, let's take a brief look at the CIA. You are watching Cold Fusion TV. After World War II, the United States would face the Soviets in a battle for world supremacy. The invention of the atomic bomb meant that no weapons could be fired in this war, so other methods had to be used. Over the next 40 years, a period known as the Cold War would begin. No shooting, just subversive tactics. In the mid-1940s, the President of the United States, inspired by the efforts of the UK's MI6 during World War II, would sign the National Security Act, which formed the Central Intelligence Agency, or the CIA. And right away, the CIA would get to work interfering in international politics. In an effort to stave off communist influence on the global stage, the CIA would interfere with the 1948 Italian elections. They would overthrow the governments of Iran and Guatemala in 1954, Indonesia in 1957, and Brazil in 1964. The CIA also conducted some rather questionable projects on their own people. Project MKUltra, for example, was the CIA's mind control program using, quote, chemical, biological, and radiological methods. Many of the studies within MKUltra focused on the administration of LSD to prisoners, drug addicts, mental patients, along with government agents and the general public, all without their consent. Documents pried loose in 1979 showed that through a front organization, the Central Intelligence Agency funded what was called the MK Ultra Project. The CIA wanted to understand more about brainwashing. It had money and it was ready to fund experiments, breaking down the mind with repeated electric shocks and drugs, including massive doses of LSD. These experiments were done without the informed consent of the patients. Lawyer Alan Stein took up some of the rejected cases. The government's paid a number of settlements since. Many of the payments come with non-disclosure agreements. They're trying to do it quietly. It's not fair. I mean, I feel, I feel blessed that I was able to get this far for my parents. I, I really do. 
that's what gives me justice. I'm just grateful to be able to do it, and I hope you, I, I just hope that uh, you can hear me up there because it might bring you peace. It might bring you both peace. Ultimately, the CIA's goal of using LSD as a mind-altering weapon against the Soviet Union and other enemies never reached fruition. But by the time the project was disabandoned in the mid-1960s, hundreds of people were unknowingly drugged and observed. I found this last one pretty entertaining. One of the most embarrassing failures of the CIA was the attempted assassination of Cuba's Fidel Castro. So, you know, in interviews, Fidel Castro used to say, if surviving assassination attempts were an Olympic sport, I would win the gold medal. Reportedly, more than 600 attempts over his 50 years in power. Now, many of the failed plots were concocted by the CIA. The CIA tried infecting Castro's scuba gear with tuberculosis, planting exploding seashells at his favorite diving site, slipping him a poisoned fountain pen. They even tried poisoning and slipping a bomb into one of his cigars. All of these attempts were a failure. It was a gigantic waste of time and money. This is all to say the CIA may seem formidable, but when it comes down to it, they're not always perfect. With the Soviet Union gone, the CIA's actions today may be less well known, but their influence on the world certainly hasn't gone away. And that brings us to their relationship with Google. In 1994, two PhD students, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, began working on their automated web crawling and page ranking application as part of their research project. They had bet on making the exploding internet easy to access, and it paid off enormously. Sergey Brin's part of the Stanford research was funded by the NSA and CIA. Brin would often report progress to non-Stanford individuals, one of whom was Dr. Rick Steinheiser. Steinheiser represented the CIA's Office for Research and Development to oversee their research funding in a joint CIA-NSA program. It wasn't uncommon at the time for research projects to be funded by the intelligence community. Government intelligence agencies had set up programs and often seed-funded projects. Roughly three to four million dollars of funding flowed through the intelligence community programs into universities. And while both Google and the intelligence community deny that the CIA directly funded the start of Google, it's evident that the intelligence community's research funding helped not only Google, but Silicon Valley as a whole. There are many ways this relationship is built and preserved. One of the biggest is perhaps the Highlands Forum. There's a good chance that you've never heard of this forum, but it connects the wider Department of Defense and the intelligence community to the tech startups. This keeps the military and the intelligence community at the cutting edge of tech. Many executives on the Highland Forum hold positions in the CIA, NSA, and many other agencies. Movements from these agencies into Silicon Valley is common. For example, in 2012, the Highlands co-chair, who also worked at DARPA, left the agency to accept a senior executive position at Google. In an email thread made public, Sergey Brin discussed information sharing for the purposes of national security with the head of the NSA. In 1999, at the peak of the dot-com boom, the CIA launched InQtel, a Silicon Valley venture capital fund its mission was to invest in startups that aligned with intelligence agencies' needs. In 2003, the CIA, through InQtel, would invest in Keyhole. Keyhole was a startup that built 3D global mapping software. One of its first uses was to support US troops during Operation Iraqi Freedom, the campaign to overthrow Saddam Hussein. The next year, Google bought Keyhole, whose team now included CIA personnel. Google would soon turn Keyhole into the basis for Google Earth. Only a year after the purchase, the director responsible for initially investing in Keyhole at the CIA investing firm, InQtel, moved to take a position at Google. During this period, Google would win contracts for different search applications for the NSA and CIA. It's understandable that Google has a relationship with the CIA and many other government agencies. In fact, most tech giants do. With a looming US election, some of the biggest names such as Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, and Google have had meetings with the FBI, Homeland Security, and the Office of the Director of National Security. Little is known about these meetings, apart from the theme of how tech giants can ensure security in the elections. 
Google, for example, has implemented an advanced protection program. This program offers Google's highest protection level to high-risk targets such as journalists, activists, politicians and business leaders. It effectively makes these accounts less susceptible to hacking risks such as phishing and malware attacks. But perhaps the greatest demonstration of the company's integration into the intelligence community is Google Federal. Google Federal was launched in 2006 and its purpose is to serve federal contracts. At a certain point, this branch of Google had so many former NSA staff that they became known as the NSA West. At its very launch, Google Federal went on a hiring spree, hiring managers and salespeople from the Army, Air Force, CIA, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. It added to its lobbying prowess by assembling a team of Democratic and Republican operatives. The strength of the relationship between Google and the intelligence community was graphically highlighted in 2010. At this time, Google came under attack from what was believed to be Chinese government hackers. The NSA came to Google's aid. The two organizations struck up a deal, an exchange of information. According to journalists, quote, Google agreed to provide information about traffic on its networks in exchange for the intelligence from the NSA about what it knew of foreign hackers. Google Jigsaw is a division dedicated to combating global threats such as extremism, censorship and disinformation, but this division has had its missteps. In 2012, as the Syrian civil war was escalating, the intelligence community was pushing for a change of government. In 2016, leaked emails revealed that Google's Jigsaw department brainstormed ways that it could push Bashir al-Assad from power. Among these ideas was a tool that visually mapped and tracked officials who broke allegiance to Assad's government. Jared Coheen, head of Google Jigsaw, planned to show this data on TV networks such as Al Jazeera within Syria. The purpose of this was to serve as propaganda to give confidence to the opposition of Assad. This opposition was of course, the side that the intelligence community wanted to win. According to Fred Burton, a former intelligence agent at the security branch of the State Department, quote, Google is getting White House and State Department support and air cover. In reality, they are doing things the CIA cannot do. More recently, Google created a tool to track if users are at high risk of radicalization based upon their internet usage. The tool redirects them to government websites focused on persuading them off their ideas. It seems now, more than ever, Google and other tech giants are blurring the line between corporate and government intelligence. Google's entry into the market makes financial sense. By 2019, the federal government was spending $90 billion a year on information technology. It's a huge market and Google seems to want to maintain a strong presence. The world in which the CIA and the intelligence community operates is a distant cry from reality and what most people are aware of. Likely, we will never know the full extent of their operations or the events that the CIA had an impact on. From helping overthrow governments to spying on the public, many controversies follow this organization. We didn't even touch on drug trafficking operations during wartime in Asia, Watergate, or the recruitment of former Nazis. That being said, it could be argued that there are just as many less sensationalized activities that have kept peace in the world that the public would never be aware of. Such is the nature of this organization's work. Secretive, enigmatic. As technology and the freedom of information give power to the masses, there is now a rising risk of an adverse technocracy. What hand will tech giants play in this future? And what does this mean for the world and society if private companies begin running intelligence and intervention programs on the public? Many years ago, when I was younger, I used to be fond of Google, but now, I look at them differently. So thanks for watching. It's a bit disconcerting, but I think it's better that people are aware of this kind of thing. So for those who are interested in videos kind of like this, I've done an episode on how governments hack each other, another episode on the dark web, and one more on WikiLeaks. So thanks for watching. My name is Dagogo, and you've been watching Cold Fusion, and I'll catch you again soon for the next video. Cheers, guys. Have a good one. Cold Fusion. It's me thinking.
and Cold Fusion is our best of the net hotspot this week. And we'll go out now with the Youth Report, stifled young voices in cyberspace addressing war on the planet they will inherit with no say about their future. Here's political analyst and former U.S. Marine Brian Berlitic with a reality check on corporate media propaganda's U-turn on Ukraine and what it has to do with the New York Times. Uh, the Western media is seriously changing its tune. It is doing a, a 180 degree turn from this narrative that we had been hearing since the beginning, this uh, resounding victory Ukraine was having over Russia. Uh, how much the, the tune has changed across the Western media, a reality check, a wake up call, if you will. Let's take a look at some of these headlines right here. The Washington Post. Ukraine's position has worsened in fight for Severon Donetsk. Now, this was uh, a city in the Donbas region, in, in northern Donbas. R uh, Russia was slowly taking it over, and the Ukrainians said they, they executed this offensive maneuver. And a lot of people were depicting it as a trap. And if you looked at it on a map, you could see that the Ukrainians were actually driving themselves deeper into an encirclement. And, and an encirclement is a trap, a trap uh, by the Russians of the Ukrainians. So this Washington Post article, it admits the fight for Severon Donetsk has worsened for us. Sergei Haidai, governor of the Lugansk region, said in a televised interview. Now, this uh, Sergei uh, Haidai, he is not actually the governor of anything. Uh, Lugansk is almost entirely under the control of Russian forces and their allies. Uh, this guy is just claiming to be the governor. He is the, appoint the appointed governor by Kiev. He no longer has any authority at all whatsoever over the Lugansk region. Uh, Russian forces have been shelling and expanding their footprint in the city, though Ukrainian troops remain in control of its industrial zone. This is a, a zone all the way in the west of the city, the very corner of it. Uh, so Russia essentially holds the, the majority of the city, except for this small industrial zone. It's, it's a miniature version of Mariupol all over again. The article continues, the creeping losses come as the West scrambles to send Ukraine more firepower as fighting in the country's eastern Donbas region intensifies. On Monday, Britain said it would send rocket launch systems that can be used to strike targets up to 50 miles away despite threats from the Kremlin that it would retaliate. The announcement follows a pledge by the United States to send Ukraine similar weapons. These are the M270s and the HIMARS. Uh, multiple launch rocket systems. We, we have been hearing about these for a while. And I have explained that it'll take at least four weeks just to train entry-level operators. It takes much longer than that to stand up an entire unit of these to get them operating effectively on the battlefield. It could take months. Uh, plus, there are very serious logistical uh, requirements to, to use these properly on the battlefield that Ukraine cannot meet. The Washington Post said it'll take a few weeks to train Ukrainians on how to use these weapons. But again, that, that is not true. They are cutting corners and they're going to be sending these weapon systems out onto the battlefield with inexperienced crews who are not going to use them to their full potential. And they will just be destroyed just like all of the other heavy weapons that Ukraine had at the beginning of this conflict. At the end of February, Ukraine had multiple launch rocket systems. With, with similar capabilities to the ones the U.S. and U.K. are sending, and they were all destroyed by Russia. These two will get destroyed by Russia. Now, there's a New York Times article that I want to show you, which is directly related. High-tech Western weapons pose challenge for untrained Ukrainian soldiers. Ukrainian fighters are getting increasingly sophisticated weaponry from abroad. Some have been reduced to Googling instructions. This, this is what I've been talking about. Uh, it says, nobody knows how to use it. It's like being given an iPhone 13 and only being able to make phone calls. This is a Ukrainian soldier saying this. They say, beyond the urgent need for the tools of war, Ukrainian troops need to know how to use them without proper training. The same dilemma facing uh, this previously mentioned Ukrainian soldier and their unit uh, and their one piece of equipment they couldn't figure out how to use, it'll be pervasive on a much larger scale. This is what the New York Times is saying. Analysts say that providing weapons without sufficient training risks repeating the United States' 
failed approach in Afghanistan, where it supplied the Afghan military with equipment that couldn't be maintained without massive logistical support. So that, that's actually a second problem. Uh, training them to use it effectively, that's one problem they absolutely cannot overcome. It takes months. They don't have months. Uh, this massive logistical support, this is the second problem they have. They also have no way of overcoming this. So it's essentially, you know, they're sending these heavy weapon systems. Someone is going to get paid money for, for this, for them. Uh, but they're not going to do anything at all to aid Ukraine on the battlefield. They are losing this war. This will not even contribute towards even slightly slowing it down. There's a third article, also from the New York Times. U.S. lacks a clear picture of Ukraine's war strategy. Officials say intelligence agencies know far more about Russia's military, even as the United States ships billions of dollars in weapons to the Ukrainians. Do you believe that? I don't believe that. I think the United States knows plenty about Ukraine. They know they have absolutely no way of winning this war. They know these weapons are going to go to waste, except for the contractors making hundreds of millions of dollars. The article says, President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine has provided near daily updates of Russia's invasion on social media. Viral video posts have shown the effectiveness of Western weapons in the hands of Ukrainian forces. And the Pentagon has regularly held briefings on developments in the war. And I've been covering this uh, almost day by day, week by week, for many weeks, for a couple of months now. And I have shown how all of that is war propaganda. War propaganda that is incredibly easy to see through if you if you want to see through it. The article continues, but despite the flow of all of this news to the public, American intelligence agencies have less information than they would like about Ukraine's operations and possess a far better picture of Russia's military, its planned operations, and its successes and failures, according to current and former officials. Governments often withhold information from the public for operational security, but these information gaps within the U.S. government could make it more difficult for the Biden administration to decide how to target military aid as it sends billions of dollars in weapons to Ukraine. Again, th these are just excuses for why the U.S. government was lying to the public, Western intelligence agencies were lying to the public, and why the Western media collectively has been lying to the public. They all knew Ukraine was losing. They covered it up, and they covered it up with lies and war propaganda. The article also says, of course, the U.S. intelligence community collects information about nearly every country, including Ukraine. But American spy agencies in general focus, on, focus their collection efforts on adversarial governments like Russia, not current friends like Ukraine. And while Russia has been a top priority for American spies for 75 years, when it comes to the Ukrainians, the United States has worked on building up their intelligence service, not spying on their government. The result, former officials said, has been some blind spots. No, it's not true. It's things they want you to think they were blind regarding, things they fully knew, and things they deliberately withheld telling the public. Uh, this is the excuse the collective West, the governments, the intelligence agencies, the media organizations, this is the excuse they're going to use. Ukraine didn't tell them. They had no idea what the, the real picture was. When people like me with no, no intelligence assets at all whatsoever, I was able to figure this out by just seeing straight through their lies. Uh, so that's what this is. This is an excuse. This is nowhere near reality. There's no one in the media, no one in the government, no one in any Western intelligence agency that actually thought any of this. And if you read that article all the way to the end, they're talking about the potential cost if the intelligence community cannot present a fuller picture to the public or Congress about Ukraine's military prospects. In other words, can they defeat Russia or not? And the answer is they cannot. And they're acting like they just don't have all the information. That's why they can't figure it out. It's it's just an excuse to cover up the fact that they were lying this entire time. And, uh, you know, I've talked about in the past many times how the U.S. lied about Afghanistan, lied about Iraq, you know, the pretext to, to invade Iraq in the first place, weapons of mass destruction. The U.S. knew Iraq did not have, would not have. It was a deliberate lie. They lied to justify military intervention in Libya 
and also in Syria, and throughout the entire duration of this crisis in Ukraine, which actually stretches all the way back to 2014, they have been lying. They lied about uh, how the government was overthrown in 2014, the Nazi problem Ukraine has had ever since then, uh, the abuses that the Ukrainian government has carried out against their own people in the Donbas region. Uh, it's not the first time they were trying to tell the truth and they just didn't have a complete picture. So this is this is the New York Times just getting done lying to you since February. Now they're lying to you about how they lied to you. Uh, you will not believe how how quickly they've changed their tune. If you're sending kind words, news tips, if you're sharing my work with others, I appreciate all of that help. I could not do this without that help. So thank you. And Brian Berlitic's work is online at buymeacoffee.com, the new atlas, wikispooks.com, the daily sheeple, and sometimes on YouTube and Twitter or not, where he's been subjected to multiple suspensions charged with, quote, inauthentic behavior, unquote, apparently under cover of censorship and diverging from the Western media propaganda narrative. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.